0: Welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Rahul Deep Singh Gill. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Isaac Weiner about his awesome new book, Religion Out Loud Religious Sound, Public Space, and American Pluralism, published by New York University Press in 2014. In 2004, the traditionally Polish Catholic community of Hamtramck, Michigan became the site of a debate over the Muslim call to prayer. Members of the Hamtram community engage in a contest about the appropriateness of sound and its intrusion into public space. In Religion Out Loud, this example is one of three cases that Isaac Weiner studies in order to investigate the role of sound in the American religious public sphere. Weiner, assistant professor of religion and culture in the Department of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University offers a rich an eminently readable account of how sound matters to religion in public life. We learn that the debates over noise have a long history in the American religious landscape. These debates change as the constitution of American religious life changes, and as jurisprudence opens new questions about the nature of religion and its expressions. In our conversation, Professor Weiner and I discuss this history, how we came upon it and what it can teach us about the future of American religious pluralism. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Religion. I'm Rahul Deep Singh Gill, a host of this channel. Today we'll be talking to Isaac Weiner about uh, his new book, Religion Out Loud, Religious Sound, Public Space, and American Pluralism. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Isaac, I wonder if we could begin the interview um, by you telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you grew up, and and how you became interested in studying religion.
1: Sure. Um, well, currently, I am an assistant, assistant professor in the Department of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University, uh, and I can tell you a little bit how I, how I came to the field of religion. Um I went to Yale University for my undergraduate degree and didn't really know what I wanted to study other than something in the humanities. I was drawn to courses on history and literature. And in all the various classes I took, I kept on finding myself writing papers, uh, exploring religious aspects of literature, of history. Um, My senior year of high school, actually, I had read uh, Nikos Kazantzakis' The Last Temptation of Christ. And I was a... uh, you know I, I grew up in a I, I was Jewish. I grew up in a very Jewish suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. and I honestly, I didn't know that much about Christianity. and I was really drawn to Kazantzakis' book and wanted to understand better why um, it was so controversial to many people. And I started taking courses especially on religion and literature early in college um, and found myself really drawn suddenly to the study of of other religions and trying to understand what religion meant to uh, to devotees. Um, at Yale, I took a number of classes with historians, with, as I said, literary scholars. Um, and I, I found myself increasingly drawn to questions of religious contact. Uh, I tended to study two main areas. I did a lot of coursework at the time on early Christianity. Um, And then also on religion in America, the American religious historians at Yale. And in both time periods, I was was drawn to the same kinds of themes, thinking about uh, questions of religious difference and of religious contact and what happens in in, uh, heterogeneous social contexts when peoples of different backgrounds come together um, and what kinds of new formations uh, uh, come out as a result of those interactions. But when I graduated college, I didn't really have a plan to go on. to study religion further, graduate school was not uh, immediately on my horizon. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, to be honest. And, and through a long, kind of complicated story, I ended up getting a job at a uh, private secondary school. It was a K through twelve prep school in Tampa, Florida. Uh, it was a um, Episcopalian day school, uh, nominally Episcopalian. The, the student The student body was about. I think 30% Jewish and 15% Hindu, maybe 5% Muslim. Um, it had been found in the early 1960s, uh, both, I think, in, at a time, you know, a, a part of the, the white flight movement in American education history and also response to school prayer decisions uh, at a time when many Protestant private schools had been founded. But over the decades, it had lost its religious identity. Um, and... By the 1990s, there was very little religious identity at the school. There were, there were no religion classes. There was no chapel. There was no chaplain. It was basically just a, a fairly, um, ritzy prep school in Tampa with a, with a religiously diverse student body. And in the late 90s, for a number of reasons, um, there was a, a push at the school to bring religion back. But nobody could really, under, nobody really was in agreement as to what that meant. Uh, Uh, Some people, I think, wanted a very strong Christian identity. Others wanted to uh, acknowledge the religious diversity of the school and and simply kind of recognize that and teach a very pluralistic kind of approach uh, to the teaching of religion. And after a long series of kind of compromises, this was all before I was there, they decided to create a new religious studies department, um, and they hired me and an Episcopalian chaplain and one other teacher, the three of us, to help create a a new religious studies program at this school. Um, And our challenge for the years that I was there was to craft a program that would introduce students uh, to the academic study of religion at the secondary school level, while also um, uh, affirming in some ways, their own religious identities and commitments, taking seriously the diversity of our student body, who they were, where they were coming from, in a way that embraced our student body while also uh, exposing them to the kind of the the study of religion as an intellectual and academic enterprise. Uh, It was an incredibly challenging uh, few years that I was there of having to uh, try to um, meet the needs of a number of different constituencies, uh, most of whom I probably did not make happy at various times. (laughs) Um, In the middle of my second year there, uh was 2001 so a month into my second year on the job uh the events of 9/11 happened yeah. and suddenly the school looked to us the new religious studies department to try to make sense of it for the students and for the teachers and our 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 uh, position in the school changed dramatically as all of a sudden many people who um Uh, didn't necessarily want us there, suddenly looked to us for something that was not what we thought we were there to do. Uh, So our own understanding of who we were and why we were there changed dramatically. Um, And all of this led me to think in a number of ways about uh, how we manage questions of difference, religious difference, racial difference, ethnic difference, um, gender difference, sexual difference, all all these various forms of difference we talk about in the academy. Um, It gave me a very concrete perspective on, on how we address these kinds of questions in the concrete places of interaction in American life, places like schools and workplaces. Um, And I became really invested and interested in trying to think through these questions of what the implications of religious and other forms of diversity are for American public life, how people encounter difference, how they respond to difference, um, how these interactions are shaped by a number of structural factors, including law and educational policy. Um, And all of these kinds of questions led me to decide to, to pursue graduate school and graduate training in the academic study of religion. Uh, so I went to graduate school with the idea that I would, that I would study uh, religious diversity in American society, its implications for American public life um, and quest and these kinds of questions of how religious differences are encountered, are mediated are negotiated. Uh, I ended up uh, enrolling at the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, where I um, uh had the privilege of working with two amazing mentors there, Thomas Tweed and Randall Styers, uh, both of whom who really uh, cultivated my thinking about religion, nurtured me. Um, what I appreciated the most about both of them as mentors was the way that they uh, encouraged me to pursue directions wherever they took me uh, to kind of indulge my passions and, and uh, explore what, what I found interesting and exciting about the study of religion, while at the same time always kind of keeping me grounded and bring me back to questions of okay, who is your audience? What are the conversations you're trying to contribute to? Um, How do you make the work that you're doing legible to other kinds of audiences? Uh, Pragmatically, how will you make this work kind of marketable and legible to a job market? Uh, And I found at UNC just a wonderfully rich intellectual home of people who are exploring uh, and doing incredible work in the study of religion while also just thinking very pragmatically about the shape and the future of the field in a way that I really appreciated very much.
0: I think that that care for your audience really comes through in the style of the book. It really is written extremely well, it was a joy to read, Um, and so I hope we'll have some time to talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the issue of sound? Because I've heard about the spatial turn in religious studies. And this sonic turn is uh, is a new, groundbreaking uh, way to look at things. I think
1: absolutely. Uh, so, thank you. I mean, first, thank you for the the on the tone. It was something that I I really thought about a lot and tried to strike in the book. Um, the sonic turn was was something that uh, honestly caught my, caught me a little by surprise as well. Uh, in in my other life, besides being a, a scholar or, or academic interested in the study of religion. Um, I'm a classically trained orchestral percussionist as well. I mean, I play various forms of percussion and drums, um, but but mostly a classical orchestral percussionist. And all through high school and through college, when I wasn't reading and studying religion or doing work for classes, uh, I was in the practice studio or rehearsals or always doing music. And yet for me, those were always two very different sides of what I did. I enjoyed playing music and I enjoyed studying religion, and I never really brought the two of them together. And... Uh, by the time I was – it wasn't until actually I was very far into this book project that I realized I had actually brought them together. Um, so while it wasn't the music that brought me to the work, I realized that both of those interests were I think were always there in me and, and kind of naturally waiting to be brought out in some kind of conjunction. How I actually came to this work into this book was – um, I was thinking a lot about scholarship on religious pluralism in religious studies in theology in political science um, in other kinds of fields that have thought about uh, religious pluralism, and kept on finding uh, that at its core scholars of pluralism continued to uh, write about religion fundamentally as something about uh, about doctrine, about beliefs about values. Um, You know, a classic critique now in the field of religious studies that we often talk about, right, religion being reduced to something fundamentally about belief or inward commitment. But I still found these ways of talking about religion largely predominating in conversations about pluralism. And I was looking for other ways of thinking about pluralism, ways that took more seriously themes of embodiment, themes of materiality. Um, I wanted to think about how Americans encounter difference and what difference it makes how those differences are encountered, Um, how it makes a difference in terms of how Americans imagine difference, how they construct difference, how they talk about difference. Um, And at about this time, uh, this was maybe midway through grad school, uh, I stumbled across a couple different things. One was uh, in a graduate seminar I was reading the work of Sally Promi and David Morgan on the visual culture of American religions. Um, uh, Sally and David are wonderful scholars who've done, I think really groundbreaking, amazing work on alerting those of us in religious studies to think more seriously about visual culture and the role that it plays in religion. Uh, I was reading Colleen McDaniel, uh, who, who does wonderful work on the material culture of American religion. And uh, a lot of that work on visual material culture was looking especially at how visual material culture function within religious traditions. Uh, and I began thinking about how, how do those forms of visual material culture kind of mediate contact across religious boundaries? What happens when people see other religions or they, they come into contact and they touch and they feel, And how do they respond to the material culture of other religions? Uh, Sally Promi in particular has a wonderful, uh, short piece, uh, on, um, the visual culture of American pluralism on the public display of religion and the way that visual culture mediates the ways we think about pluralism in America. Uh, she's now working on a, a a larger book project on that theme. Uh, and then I, and then at the same time, I stumbled across, um, uh, other literature, uh, from outside of religious studies, primarily from anthropology, uh, from geography, uh, from some historians who were participating in what came to be known as kind of a sensory turn in humanities scholarship. Uh, so you mentioned the spatial turn. Uh, similarly at this time, there, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there became a sensory turn in anthropology, uh, geography, uh, as I said, uh, history, other fields, that began thinking about um, the multi-sensory ways through which modernity was constituted, the different ways uh, that people sense culture, the different, cu- the different ways that different cultures sense the world differently, and what we can learn from those kinds of questions. And I began thinking about what are the other kinds of sensory modes uh, besides vision, besides sight, through which Americans encounter difference, um, whether differences that become encoded as religious or not, and what might we learn by looking at these different kinds of sensory modes. Um, and so originally, actually, I conceived this project as a broader project on the sensory encounter with religious difference. And this book emerged out of my dissertation work, I mean, dissertation research. And a very, very early version of the dissertation was actually going to be five different chapters, one chapter on each of the senses and thinking about the different ways that Americans encounter religion through the senses. For a number of reasons, that project didn't make sense. It was a little contrived. Um, it wouldn't have worked in the ways that I wanted uh, but as I was thinking about that project, I stumbled across this one particular case study, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. A dispute about the Islamic call to prayer in a town called Hamtramck, Michigan, that took place in the year, uh, transpired mostly in the year 2004. Um, um, and I traveled to Detroit, and I began doing some research on this case, which, again, we'll, we'll talk about further, I'm sure. And and as I delved into this case, uh, not only did the case itself become incredibly interesting to me, but I started stumbling across a larger history of disputes about religious sound, uh, religious sound in public spaces that had been largely overlooked and neglected. People hadn't really written about, And it became to me, I think, a really wonderful hook to start thinking about this problem of religious difference in American history, uh, to think about why it was that sound had proven so conducive uh, to conflict over religion's place in American society.
0: So religious difference matters pretty early in American history, and um, I think you've done a great job of laying out um, a, a 19th century, a 20th century, and a 21st century case study um, you point out that sound begins to matter, at least in your book, with church bells in the industrial city. Can you tell us a little bit about the case that you start the book out with?
1: Absolutely right. So I, what I ended up doing with the book was structuring it as a historical narrative that traces change over time in terms of um, how religion was regulated at different how religious sound was regulated at different moments in U.S. history uh, that's interwoven with a story of kind of American uh, religious difference in American public life. Um, when I first started stumbling across this history, uh, the first case actually from, from earlier the U.S. history uh, that I discovered was this fascinating case from 1877 in Philadelphia. Uh It was a case that centered on a church in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood of Philadelphia called St. Mark's. Uh, If you know Philadelphia, Rittenhouse Square was uh, a very kind of posh neighborhood um, where all of the wealthy, upper class, kind of Episcopalian elite of Philadelphia lived at the time. Those who wielded the greatest social and cultural, economic and political power in the city. Uh, And the case centered on the church bells of St. Mark's Church, uh, a a very high church church. Uh, high Anglican Episcopal church um, and it featured basically wealthy Episcopalians fighting each other about the volume of church bells at St. Mark's The case got a lot of public attention. The media had a field day with it because Philadelphia newspapers were so amused by this spectacle of wealthy Philadelphia Episcopal elites fighting each other over something as silly as the noise of church bells. Uh, And on its surface, that's what it looks like, is this kind of silly dispute where um, elite Victorian Americans fighting each other about... Uh, uh, stop making so much noise and disrupting my sleep, while the vestry of the church saying, you don't tell us what we can do uh, and how loud we can ring our bells. But as I began delving into the case and then doing some broader historical archival work, I discovered that there was a much broader story that the St. Mark's Church was actually speaking to. Um, In fact, it was one of a number of churches uh, in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s uh, that found its church bells under attack. Uh, this became such, actually, uh, a common phenomenon that a number of newspapers began referring to this as the bells question. And editorials were written uh, uh, denouncing and debating and trying to understand and decipher, um, do modern industrial cities still need bells? Uh, that was the question that was asked in case after case, and especially in this case at St. Mark's Church in Philadelphia that I that I delve into in the book. Um, do modern Cities need bells? Do modern churches need bells? And I found that by exploring that question, what they were actually asking in some ways was uh, do modern cities need religion? And what is the place, mm-hmm. of, re- and what is the place of religion in the modern um, city? Uh, part of what I try to show in the book is that we can't talk about religious sounds simply in the abstract. That is, what is the meaning of church bells? What is the meaning of the Islamic call to prayer? But we have to try to understand how sounds are heard in particular uh, historical moments, in particular social contexts, by particular audiences. And what happened in the late 19th century is that church bells come to sound differently. Uh, For much of the 19th century, the sound of church bells had largely been taken for granted. That is, churches took for granted Their right to ring bells. Um, At times you find scattered disputes where people will be upset about the volume of particular bells, but certainly nobody would have thought to go to court to challenge a church's prerogative or a church's right to ring bells as begins happening in uh, the 1870s. Um, For a long time uh, in the early 19th century in America, uh, church bells were rang uh, publicly not only to celebrate uh, American holidays, uh, so not only celebrate Christian holidays, uh, but also important moments of kind of American civic religion. Church bells, churches rang their bells on the Fourth of July and on uh, and on the New Year's. Um, and in many ways, church bells kind of announce this close relationship between uh, Protestant power, Protestant um, Protestant power, and civic life in America. And in the late 19th century, uh, at a moment when uh, the place of religion is becoming really kind of an open question because of forces of industrialization, of urbanization, of immigration. American cities are changing in dramatic ways in the late 19th century. Um, it's that moment when the church bells become an open question as well. Uh, and what I try to unpack a little bit through my analysis of the St. Mark's case in Philadelphia, as well as by looking a little more broadly at the changing place of church bells, is how the church bell question came to express these broader anxieties about Protestantism's shifting position in the industrial city. Uh, so what I show in the case is that the different sides of this dispute in St. Mark's Church um, adopted very different understandings of, of how uh, Protestant churches would retain their authority in the industrial city. That is not whether they would retain. Both sides in the dispute took for granted in a certain way that Protestant Christianity had a privileged place in American society. Um, But they debated how it would retain that privileged place and its place of authority and prominence. Uh, So on the one side, those who attacked the church's right to ring its bells... um, Actually, let me start on the other side. Those who um, defended the church's right... They had a particular notion of the relationship between uh, public noise and public power. That is, for them, uh, the right to ring bells publicly expressed their their kind of broader understanding of their power and position of privilege in the city. And any attack on their right to ring bells, they interpreted as kind of an attack on that broader uh, their broader power and their broader privilege. Those who attacked the bells, who again were also wealthy Episcopal elites in Philadelphia, um, they advanced a different kind of notion uh, um, where for them, right, power was expressed through the right to silence others, right, to restrain the right. And so we see there immediately um, different kinds of notions of that relationship between uh, noise and power. On the one hand, the right to express noise, uh, without censure, right the right to make oneself heard versus on the other hand, the right to kind of silence others or to restrain the right of others from making themselves from making themselves heard. Um, but what happens over the course of this of this St Marks dispute in uh, Philadelphia is that, as I said, it gradually comes to be, be even more broadly this question about um, proper forms of religiosity and religion's proper place in uh, the city. And so what I try to argue more broadly in the book is that disputes about noise very often are actually um, much more about this kind of liberal project of of regulating and authorizing certain proper forms of religiosity, proper ways of being religious. And so what we find is that in complaints about noise often express these kind of liberal post-Enlightenment liberal Protestant notions of what it means to be properly religious. How does that come up in this church bell dispute in the 1870s and 1880s? Um, What we see is that that those who were complaining about the church bells advanced a notion of religion that basically said religion does not need forms of auditory mediation. Um, Religion is not properly something that requires these kind of material expressions and material forms. Religion at its core is properly something uh, uh, that is quiet and restrained. Civilized religion does not need to make itself heard, does not need to make noise. And their arguments actually express these kind of implicit, what I call kind of liberal Protestant norms about proper forms of religiosity. On the other side, those who were uh, the defenders of the church and the defenders of the church's right to make noise, uh, they argued um, that, in fact, if religion was going to survive in the industrial city, it had to make noise. It had to make itself heard, precisely because so many at the time uh, associated noise with various forms of progress. That is... Um, who made noise in the industrial city? It was factories, it was industry. Uh, The engines of progress were seen as making noise, um, and that if religion, therefore, was going to make itself continue to seem relevant and and express its vitality in the city, it would also have to make noise rather than kind of retreating. So we see on the one side... uh, Those attacking the church bells, suggesting that religion's place in the industrial city should be to offer kind of a a a sonic refuge, a place of quiet, a place of retreat, where religion would set itself off from the city as something set off distinct and apart, um, a place of quiet within the kind of the hustle and bustle and din of modern industry in the modern city, whereas those defending the church bells. Uh, said, no, 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 religion must compete to make itself heard um, kind of against all the other forces, the secularizing forces of the modern city uh, that are trying to silence it and drown it out.
0: One of the things that I'm enjoying thinking about as you're speaking is how, wow, the difference between urban America and rural America is going to start taking shape here. Uh, There's going to be ruptures that that we really need to pay attention to um, starting out uh, with these spatial and sonic and sensory uh, disputes, right? Absolutely.
1: So where, where one lives, right, whether it's in a city or in the suburbs or in the country, um, brings with it different kinds of assumptions and expectations, I think, about public sound and about public noise. Um, And we can think about them in contemporary America today, of course, right, as well, the different kinds of norms that regulate suburban living versus urban living, um, and, of course, versus in the country as well. In in the 19th century, part of the shift in church bells uh, was precisely, in some ways, this kind of rural-urban split. So, in part, this is about religion's place in in, uh, the industrial city. But it's also about the way that church bells sound differently in the city. Right. Um, uh, many many of the people who um, uh, intervened in the bells question at the time, whether writing newspaper editorials or or participating in legal disputes or other kinds of conflicts about this, um, would kind of wax nostalgically and very sentimentally about, in their minds, this kind of idyllic past when you would live in a community that was defined by its homogeneity, right? So you'd have one kind of parish church that would ring bells and the cycles of life with uh, the cycles of daily life would kind of be dictated by the rhythms of that bell. So that they have in mind here, right? These kind of medieval Christian, almost monastic communities, right? This is where uh, church bells become so ingrained in kind of the, the rhythms of daily life. And in the modern industrial city, um, there's a sense that those rhythms have become de-standardized and more individualized and you're no longer living in a community defined by that kind of um, homogeneity, which of course probably never existed, right? In that, in quite that nostalgic, sentimentalized uh, kind of form, but in a modern city marked by immigration, um, marked by diversification, marked by kind of dramatic heterogeneity of all sorts, right? This is religious and racial and ethnic heterogeneity of the modern city. Um, One can no longer take for granted uh, that the sounds of church bells would sound the same way. There's this wonderful quote that I include in the book um, by somebody who was very upset about the sounds of church bells in their neighborhood. And she basically says, look, uh, if we could guarantee that only Episcopalians would hear Episcopal church bells and Presbyterians <laughs> would hear Presbyterian church bells, then this would all be well and good. Right. But it was the but it was the cacophony of of American denominationalism, right? The cacophony of clashing, competing um, American religious difference that struck out as particularly noisy to this woman. And there, I think it's noisy, right? Not just in a decibel level sense, but noisy that something was. Um, fundamentally kind of a a, a threatening and loud about this situation of kind of radical heterogeneity. Um, Well, at the same time, also the actual physical experience of living in a city transformed uh, the sounds of church bells. So you have here this kind of relationship between um, the cultural and the physical properties of a city. So that when you live in close proximity in row houses next to each other, um, the reverberations of church bells against buildings um, uh, packed in and you're living on top of your neighbors, the actual kind of physical uh, characteristics of living in a city also really does transform the experience of hearing um, of others. So what I also like to play with in this book a little bit is that, that congruence, that confluence of uh, the cultural and uh, I guess the physical or the organic that you find in Debates about noise. Um, This is always both about the physical properties of sound and never about the physical properties of sound at the same time.
0: In the second part of the book, you shift from uh, the sounds of power to the sounds of uh, dissent. And you're picking up here on other court cases related to religious free exercise, particularly around uh, the practices of religious groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, one of the interesting things that I picked up in reading this section of the book was one of these major the the, the sort of protagonist in one of these major cases, the Saya case. Um, you actually went and interviewed was it his son or his grandson? His son. Tell me about that story. How you tracked this fellow down? Why? Um, you know why interviewing him was was important, and and, and, and what what you learned from it.
1: Um, sure. Should I say a little bit about the case first, or sure? Tell uh, us about the science case. Um, sure. So what happens is at the the end of part one, the section "Sounds of Power," where I talk about the church bell cases. Um, where I conclude there in the end is that uh, you're left by the end of this bells question with the situation where it's not that church bells are inherently noise or that they're not noise, um, but the church bells have become kind of a sound like any other. That is, when a church bell dispute is brought to municipal authorities or brought to courts, they treat it as basically just like any other sound of the city. If it gets too loud or too noisy, it can be silence. Um, And if it's not, uh, well, then it can continue to ring out. And what I suggest there is, is that part of what's happening there is that they're actually taking up um, this notion that religion doesn't really need, right? These forms of auditory and material mediation, that noise and sound, it's just kind of extraneous. Um, and what I've shown in those earlier chapters is how that advances this kind of liberal Protestant logic about modern religion. And so in the end, the church thought that its power was expressed by making noise, um, but in fact, it's the opposite in some way. Uh, the power of Protestantism, uh, by the end of this Bell's question, is in, factually, is, is in fact expressed uh, by shaping a public sphere that is ostensibly or nominally neutral, or even secular, we could say, and yet structured by distinctly Protestant norms that allows for certain ways of being religious uh, rather than others. So what I do is I use that as I transition to part two, right? Part one, I show how those norms are advanced really surprisingly in relation to this very kind of elite Protestant Episcopal Church. And in section two, I move towards looking at how then those same norms that come to be established through the church bell cases come to be applied against religious dissenters, um, uh, groups that brought radically different ways of being religious to their public engagements and public encounters. So there I look at groups like the Salvation Army and the Jehovah's Witness, um, who were radically kind of uncivil, right? In the way that they loudly and stridently and adamantly uh, brought religion to American public spaces. So the Sia case that you introduced, um, it was a 1948 US Supreme Court case that originates in 1946 in an upstate New York town called Lockport, New York. Um, And it was about a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who, um, uh, on a series of Sunday afternoons, Take their sound car, that is a car that they had rigged up with a microphone and loudspeakers, amplifiers, and they began driving around Lockport, New York, and parking it in public parks in Lockport, and amplifying, kind of holding impromptu religious services in the public parks, uh, using their loudspeakers to broadcast uh, religious messages and religious services. And people in the park complained, and eventually the city prosecuted them under a noise ordinance uh, that required a permit uh, for the right to um, use loudspeakers or amplifiers in a public park. And this case eventually made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled on the case in 1948. And I suggest this is the first time the U.S. Supreme Court addresses this question of, do religions have a right to make noise? Um, To get to your question... Uh, throughout the book, I didn't want to rely solely on uh, legal records, on legal documents. And I did my best throughout the book to, to supplement uh, the legal records with a variety of other kinds of sources, whether it's traditional kind of historical archival work, um, uh, whether it's looking to more kind of, I did some ethnographic work when studying the call to prayer dispute in Michigan. Um, and in the case of the Saya case, um, uh, I spent some time doing kind of some local history, where I went to Lockport and I, I kind of delved through the archives and the local history collection. But I also tracked down a few a few different people who had participated in the actual um, dispute back in 1946. Uh, and There were really two people I spoke with. One, as you suggested, was um, uh, Samuel Sia's son. Samuel Sia was the owner of the car. Uh, at the heart of the dispute, and so it was he who was uh, uh, rung up, it was he who was found to be in violation of the city's noise ordinance uh, because he owned the car and the recording equipment. Samuel Tsai passed away in the 1970s, but I was able to track down his son and speak to him about his recollections of the case. I was also able to find an elderly couple who live in upstate New York, um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who the wife in the couple was actually there Uh the day that Samuel Saya was arrested back in 1946. um, Her father uh was a Jehovah's Witness who was active um in this uh in the same community as Samuel Saya, and who would often go with him on these expeditions to drive their cars around neighborhoods. And he had brought uh this woman, um her name is Eleanor Gale. Um she at the time I think was uh maybe six or maybe seven or eight years old. Um and he had brought her with them on the actual one of these days in question when Samuel Saya uh, and her father as well was arrested for making this noise um, and so I went and I interviewed her and her husband. her husband was not actually there on one of those days, but he had also been in the community at the time and knew many of the players he had wonderful recollections of Samuel saya and so I was able to introduce the, interview this couple and also um, Samuel saya's son about their memories and reflections. Uh, Tracking them down was a challenge. Uh, I I can talk about process first and then what I learned from them, um, especially uh, uh, for those who are out there who've either had this experience or uh, who want to go in this experience. Um, It was very difficult. I really wanted to try to find people. And what I was first struck by when I went to Lockport uh, was that nobody in the town who I met – uh, I talked to local historians. I talked to city officials. I talked to, um, it's a, it's it's not a very big town. It's one of those towns where um, the people who have lived there have lived there for a long time, have long uh, uh, local memories and local knowledges. And I spoke with many elderly residents of the town who they and their families had lived there for generations. And what was amazing to me was that nobody had any recollection of this case ever happening. Mm. Um, uh, uh this is a United States Supreme Court that originated in Lock. United States Supreme Court case. Supreme Court case that originated in Lockport, and nobody had any idea. Um, there was a lot of other stories they told me about the town and its religious history, but this was a blip on the radar uh, for the people who I met in Lockport, and I was really puzzled by this. There is a, a Kingdom Hall, uh, a Jehovah's Witness uh, meeting place in Lockport, and I went there. Um, And it has pretty irregular hours, as many Kingdom Halls do, because most of their work is really, you know, out and and witnessing to the public, whether it's door to door or other kinds of ways. Um, But I did find when they held weekly meetings and I went to one of their meetings at the Kingdom Hall in Lockport, and I spoke with um, uh, a couple people there who were regular uh, um, attendees kind of leaders in the community. And they also had no idea um, that Jehovah's Witnesses in Lockport had ever played a role in a major U.S. Supreme Court case. They had no recollection. They had never heard of Samuel Saya, But one of them said to me, look, there's this couple who live about 20 minutes away. If anyone knows about this, they will. And they gave me the phone number of Eleanor and John Gale, this couple who I ended up interviewing. Um, And sure enough, they actually um, uh, had very strong recollections of it and, and were able to Tell me a lot about it, but even then, what I found fascinating was was precisely that disjuncture. That for the Gales, they had very strong memories of what a significant and important moment this case was. Mm-hmm. Um, Samuel Saya ended up winning uh, his Supreme Court case, and the Gales told me what this, what, what an incredible um, feeling of pride it was for Saya and for the Gales and for other Jehovah's Witnesses at the time um, to experience this kind of uh, this judicial. Uh, legal success in the courts. Well, at the same time, nobody in the town had any memory of this, and I was struck by that, and I, I thought about that in a number of ways that I can say a little bit more about. Um, meanwhile, I also – I didn't know yet at the time – I guess I knew that Samuel Sia had passed away, or they were pretty sure that he had, although they hadn't kept up with him, and I, I didn't know he, – he might have still uh, – I didn't know if I could track him down or his family – I did a number of searches Sai is a pretty common name. it was hard to find um, but I looked I knew that he had lived in Buffalo, not Lockport, and I found a number of Sayas listed in the Buffalo white pages in the phone book or um and I just started calling them, figuring, mm-hmm. hey, you know what what could it hurt you know and i it was an absurd it was an absurd moment of calling random strangers and saying is there any chance that your father was once involved in a U.S. Supreme Court case about Jehovah's Witnesses (laughs) back in the 1940s? Um, And most, of course, said, uh, no, what are you talking about? And and quickly hung up on me. Um, But I finally tracked down one who said, in fact, um, yes, that was my father, but I don't know anything about it and don't want to talk about it, but my brother might. Um, And he gave me his brother's phone number, His brother lives in Florida now, and I called his brother, and it turned out his brother volunteered to me quite quickly, Uh, that father and the other brother had had a falling out years ago, and and he doesn't like to talk about his father. Um, But this this son, the brother in Florida, um, uh, was quite eager to speak with me. In fact, he also, as a young child, had gone out with his father on these trips of sitting in his car and helping him... um, uh, speak over the loudspeakers to announce services, um, and he was quite eager to speak with me. And, and I learned from his recollections about the case. And again, for him, it was also quite important um, his memories of
0: this dispute. I think these are but, one of the things. These are some of the things um, that make this this book so rich is all the different layers of of research uh, that went into it. But go on, you were going to say.
1: No, th- I mean, thank you. I appreciate that uh, very much. Um, because for me, what it allowed me to look at, especially in the Sia case, was uh, the aftermath of the case, um, which I argue in the chapter has, has a much more ambiguous outcome uh, than it seemed to on its surface. Hmm. Um, that is, what I was struck by, right, was one, the fact that nobody in Lockport had any recollection of this. It wasn't very important to them. Right. Um, two, the incredible central place of pride um, that Sia's son and the other Jehovah's Witnesses with whom I spoke, had about their memories of this case. That for them, this was um, a clear triumph and a vindication of their rights. They had taken their fight to defend their religious rights all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had legitimated them. And yet, there was another disjuncture that I wanted to explore, which was the fact um, that, A it became pretty clear to me, both through conversations with them, as well as looking through newspaper records and other kinds of um, archival materials, that the Jehovah's Witnesses, after they won this case in Lockport in the 1940s, never acted on their victory. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, they never again went back into Lockport Public Parks and proselytized publicly in this way over loudspeakers and using sound cars. Um, And at the same time, In the aftermath of this court decision, for for a number of reasons that I go into in the book, um, the city of Lockport ended up rewriting its noise ordinance in a way that actually was more restrictive of the witnesses' rights to publicly proselytize. So there was this odd disjuncture between the fact that the witnesses remembered, and this is what was so helpful to me to interview them and talk to them, was to get their recollections and their impressions, their memory of this as being an unmitigated success, victory, triumph. While the record to me seemed to indicate that it was far more ambiguous and and what I wanted to play with was this tension that how could the Supreme Court kind of... um, for them and yet the logic through which the court did again allowed for kind of an even more restrictive regulatory structure that restrained their right to actually act on that victory. Um, so what I do in the chapter is I unpack the logic of the court's decision, which again speaks back to some of the issues that I raised in the Church Bell case, um, that I show how uh, the court treat what the witnesses are up to, as um, uh, for them, religion is fundamentally, for the court's justices, and this is also true of, uh, of a number of other authorities that I cite in this chapter, they treat the witnesses' practices that at its core, religion is about substantive content, right? And that what matters is the ideas of religion, the beliefs, the doctrines, and noise, public expression, that's all kind of um, peripheral. So what I say in the chapter is that the, uh, uh, the courts treated the witnesses as engaged in religious practice that made use of sound cars, um, but for the witnesses, uh, their use of sound cars fundamentally materialized um, and was constitutive of their religious identity and core religious principles for them. Um, that the two could not be separated. The material medium, the medium through which they materialized their practice, was constitutive of and and inextricably entangled with. Um, their religious uh, uh, identities and beliefs and and kind of ways of being. So now what I say is the witnesses were engaged in what I call sound car religion in the book, rather than than religion making use of sound car. And it was this this logic, the way that the court disentangled the material practice from what really mattered, that is the substantive content of religion, that allowed uh, them and ultimately Lockport to both – endorse and affirm the witnesses' rights in kind of this language of, of religious neutrality, while at the same time actually disciplining the witnesses into highly restrained and highly regulated forms of religious practice. Um, so it's this very ambivalent outcome of the case, actually, in the end.
0: There are so many great stories uh, in this book that we obviously have to fly through to, to meet the time requirements of an interview like this. Um, and I think a lot of the great stuff in the book is is people are going to have to pick up and read for themselves. Jurisprudence geeks in particular are going to have a field day that they're going to love it. In the third chapter, you talk about uh, Muslims in Michigan, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of leave that to the readers to pick up on. Um, but tell me about this this inextricability, right, of the material, and and tell me. Uh, about how the pavement hits the road here. What might you know a zoning board, right, which is where the locus of a lot of these uh, conflicts shows up. What might somebody who works for a zoning board get by understanding uh, the history of uh, noise, sound, and religion that, that you're putting that you're putting out here. Yes.
1: It's a great question. Um, and it's it's one that I think is really important to think about and hard to address, right? Those of us, when we write these kinds of um, books intended, first and foremost, right, for academic audiences, um, are not always trained, right, to think kind of this, this, these kind of right, practical kind of regulatory questions. And in some ways, I resist against them a little bit because of kind of the incentive drive, the the incessant drive to kind of give an answer or provide a solution. Um, And yet part of what I'm doing is, as you suggest in this book is to kind of re-describe in a way that I think has um, important implications, right? For rethinking how we think about uh, religion in public. So one of the, one of the arguments of the book, right? Is thinking about pluralism as different ways of using body and space and ultimately different ways of thinking about religion itself, Um, So what you find in a lot of these local disputes, these zoning board disputes, is um, uh, there's a language of difference, kind of a language of pluralism, that in fact very often collapses religion to all being kind of fundamentally the same kinds of things. right? So it's a language that speaks the language, it's a discourse that speaks the language of difference while collapsing them to a certain kind of unity. Um, And what that allows very often is... uh, for zoning boards to adopt um, uh, policies that ostensibly um, seem neutral or equal or fair, right? That is, this is kind of a a procedural uh, notion of neutrality um, that treats everyone the same, right? So they can say, uh, well, look, you know, we're not discriminating against the Muslims who are broadcasting the call to prayer. Uh, We are treating... Uh, Everyone in the same way. Nobody can make noise above a certain decibel level or nobody can make noise publicly at all. Um, But we're not discriminating against Muslims versus Christians, right? Nobody can do this. And so it's all fair and equal and all is well and and good. And this is kind of a classic um, move that we see very often in municipal politics as well as um, judicial legislative uh, decision making. I try to show in the book is a couple of things, right? Is one is to move beyond this kind of procedural notion to a more substantive notion of of neutrality uh, that suggests that even when you treat all groups the same way, you're not necessarily treating them right equally or neutrally, um, because different groups, right, uh, they understand uh, religion fundamentally in different ways. So that if you um, uh, obviously on the on the first level, right, if you treat everyone the same way the burden of that, of course, falls disproportionately on those groups who actually seek to make noise, right? If you're a group that um, uh, does not make those kinds of public claims, uh, Mm -hmm. then the burden does not fall on you in the same way, right? So you see this, of course, again and again in debates, for example, about um, uh, uh, the Muslim headscarf, right, in France or uh, about the Sikh turban, or people people advancing this claim that, um, yes, it seems to apply to all equally, right, but not everyone... uh, uh, Needs to express their religion publicly in the same kinds of ways. Um, that's 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 one uh, way that I'm trying to redescribe. Right? Two is that even more. What I argue in the book, right, is the way that um, those notions again kind of further and advance uh, these liberal Protestant notions. Right. Uh, so that really, it's not even neutral with regard to religion, but it's but it's advancing a certain Protestant conception of religion. Um, and even more than that, what I really try to play with in the book. That we uh, haven't—that I want to make sure make sure I gesture to a little bit in our um, conversation—is that not all sounds um, are heard the same way or equally loud, even if they're the same volume. That is, we don't pay attention to all sounds in the same way. So, what I show in the book is not just a public sphere structured according to Protestant norms in terms of the answer is everybody keeps quiet. Um, but also a public sphere where Protestants themselves also, right, and Christians themselves have often made their religions heard, but in a way that hasn't translated to complaints about noise. Now, what I show in the book is we pay attention to different sounds in different kinds of ways, and why we pay attention to certain sounds rather than others is really, really significant. So, for example, in uh, this, this call a prayer case in Michigan uh, – you have the call to prayer being singled out as noise while churches across the street right, are broadcasting church bells in a way that goes unnoticed. Um, and so, you have a, so so that Protestantism again, or Christianity more generally, becomes right the unmarked, the unnoticed in public space and public discourses, that they're allowed to make sounds that are not heard as being noise in a way when others um, uh, do attract those noises. I, mean, I should get back to your question. right? What does all of this mean then? Um, for zoning boards, for policymakers. First, it's to have them think differently about uh, what it means to treat groups equally and fairly, and this is a a tall task, obviously, but to think about and take seriously the notion um, that different groups bring different kinds of claims um, uh, publicly and that... um, Uh, uh, treating everyone the same is not necessarily equivalent, right, to treating everyone equally. And there's a whole large body of literature um, in legal theory and political theory on those questions, um, but that can be uh, quite difficult. Um, Part of it also is a a much simpler notion, um, which is to think about how uh, um, local groups engage with each other around these these forums like municipal zoning boards, um, which is that very often... Um, uh, disputes get kind of crystallized down to a black and white where everybody is a bigot or nobody is a bigot, mm. right? So you have disputes again and again about Hindu temples and Buddhist temples and Sikh Gurdwaras and new mosques um, where people complain about things, right, like parking and zoning and noise, trying to um, uh, stop the building of these new institutions, Um and usually it gets reduced to either, this is so obviously not about noise, these are just people who don't want these newcomers in the neighborhoods. Or on the other hand, um, noise can be, right, a real kind of a real quality of life issue um, that has real implications for living in a neighborhood. Um, and so I have a very modest intervention, right, which is simply to suggest um, that what's what's tricky at times, not always, at times it really is about one or the other, is um, What's, what can be very complicated and tricky about these noise disputes is precisely the impossibility of kind of disentangling um, those real concerns about quality of life, what we might call the more illegitimate concerns, right about, about bigotry and prejudice and anxieties about others um, that also shape the way these disputes play out. Um, and so, there's a way that uh, on the local level, um, uh, this is kind of my my. my uh, um, A kind of modest, uh, kind of idyllic liberal intervention in a certain way, right, as to um, how people can listen to each other in ways um, that allow uh, uh, for some of the legitimacy of these claims, Um, while at the same time that I also conclude by suggesting at times there can be virtue in not listening to each other quite so carefully or closely. Um, And I think that also has real implications for how we negotiate these questions on the actual local or practical level. Um, And let me me explain just a couple words what I mean by that, why sometimes it makes sense not to actually listen too carefully. Um, And and there's two sides of this, right? One is, um, it's those sounds we notice, right? Those sounds that we pay attention to uh, which are the ones that stand out as unwanted noise. Those are the sounds that we complain about. Um, and so sometimes the solution can be as simple as uh, not listening quite so closely, right? There can be kind of a virtue in not listening so closely uh, um, and learning to kind of take for granted in a certain way, the sounds and noises of others um, so that they too can kind of fade to the background. Um, at times we want to celebrate, right? Let's listen adamantly to the sounds of others, Um But at times we need to learn to, I think, right, what some groups want is not to be specially noticed, but to be kind of let alone, to kind of just live their lives and do their thing. Uh, and, uh, at times that can be accomplished better, right, through not, through through this kind of act of not listening. Um, and that goes as well for those kind of the liberal pluralists who want to encourage us always to, to listen more attentively, uh, to others and to celebrate the sounds and harmonies and, um, uh, uh, Right, kind of pluralistic, mellifluous melodies, right, of American um, diversity. But as I show in the final chapter about the call to prayer dispute, um, we may not have time to get get into much in this interview today, um, is that those discourses of kind of liberal pluralism and of liberal tolerance uh, very often run the risk of making um, groups, in order to gain recognition and legitimacy, um, craft their claims. Uh, within, right, those kind of narrowly constrained, uh, circumscribed discourses Mm. of, of pluralism and tolerance, so that they can only make their voices heard in very kind of carefully constrained ways. So even in the rush to celebrate difference, right, they, they end up running the risk of actually effacing, um, of effacing those differences. Uh, so that at times, even, right, that, that kind of, that, that, uh, idealistic impulse, um, to celebrate the sounds of others can actually call attention to those others right in ways that a make us only listen to them um, according to pre kind of set or predetermined discourses and narratives and also that continue to single out their sounds um, as being uniquely problematic or new or different while continuing not to pay attention to all of those kind of unmarked sounds that already structure um, our public spaces and that quietly speak uh, to questions of Christian privilege in American society.
0: I think that's a really important, nuanced, and sophisticated idea that we all need to take uh, more seriously in issues of pluralism and and interfaith because, uh, as someone who works interfaith myself, uh, and someone who you know is obviously not uh, in the Protestant majority, even in interfaith settings, right, uh, certain assumptions still set the table that other people are invited to. So exactly I, I'm really glad that you raised that really important point. Uh, one thing that I want to make sure we talk about before uh, the interview is over is writing. Let me read here the first sentence of the first chapter of this book. I love it. The gods were probably the first to complain about human noise. And then you go and you quote from um, an ancient Akkadian epic poem. Why was it so important for you to craft this book in the way that you did? And um, how did you do it? Did it come naturally to you? Or uh, is this... Do we not see all the all the work that went into making this kind of sausage here? Uh,
1: first, let me just say thank you for the question and thank you for the kind words, because I really, um, my hope with the book really was that it's one that is uh, um, eminently readable and accessible and that I think makes important interventions um, but tries to wear its theory kind of lightly. Yeah. Um, uh, I was trained in a... a, a my concentration at UNC my PhD program was in in religion and culture and I was trained to think in, in you know in, in theory of religion and cultural studies and and, um, uh, and I have that theoretical training um, and I believe strongly in kind of wearing that theory lately as I try to craft an argument through stories in this book um, that I think will actually speak both uh, uh, to scholars and to um, a broader public that I take very seriously as my audience. Um, so on the one hand, this is a – it was a calculated decision that I wanted my book to be eminently readable um, uh, I wanted to tell a book through case studies and through stories, precisely because I think that's where the work of pluralism happens in the in the United States right. is through particular moments and particular stories. And one of the one of the implicit arguments of the book, precisely, is we have to look at those concrete moments of engagement and learn from how it is um, that we encounter and engage with difference uh, in American society and American history. Um, but part of it also is that is actually simply how. I write and how I think and how I talk. Um, you know, I, I, as I said earlier at the beginning of the interview, um, I went to graduate school after, you know, teaching, you know, in a K 12 prep school for several years. Um, and I, in some ways, began to craft my voice as a scholar and really as an adult right after college in that experience of teaching and of translating um, academic work for multiple audiences. Uh, for secondary school students, for the parents of secondary school students to whom I had to not only justify why I was there, but also I began offering classes to them, um, to community members. This was a prominent school in the community, and I spoke with them and tried to justify why, the, what we were doing, creating this model of religious studies at the school, and I taught classes that were also for community members. Um, in graduate school, and now in, in my uh, first two positions, I, I previously taught at Georgia State University in Atlanta, and now I'm at Ohio State in Columbus. Um, uh, I take very seriously um, my position at public universities, in graduate school, and as a professor, where I think we have an obligation to the public uh, to translate our research in ways that makes it accessible and understandable. Um, I take my, my students are always in the back of my mind. I wanted to write a book that could be used in undergraduate classrooms, Mm -hmm. um, and I feel really gratified that I I, I know already that it has been used in that way. Um, I I hope to success, although I I can't necessarily judge or assess that. Um, uh, And so this is the way I think that I write naturally, that I I write um, as both a scholar and a teacher, um, trying to, um, uh, again, not water down the theory. I, I, I believe very strongly that my book makes important theoretical interventions. Um, and yet I wanted to do that in a way that would be, as I said, uh, readable um, and accessible in a way that I would hope would speak to um, a broad range of scholarly disciplines um, and a broad range of other kinds of audiences as well.
0: So tell us, Something uh, about what you're working on now. What are you writing and, and what's going on in your life?
1: Uh, sure. Um, so th- there's a couple of projects that I'm working on. But one that I, I'm actually very excited about um, furthers this work, again, of thinking about the work that we do, um, and it's uh, as a form of public engagement. Um So it's a project that I I began with a colleague of mine in Atlanta, Georgia State, and I'm now um, continuing work on it here in Columbus, and I'm also now... Actually, I've partnered with some colleagues uh, um, in Michigan as well, and I'm calling it a Religious Sound Map project. Mm. Um, Actually, I thought that I was done with uh, Religious Sound for a little while, um, but it seems to be sucking me back in, uh, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, But what we're trying to do is... um, Uh, think about what would it mean to map uh, the religious diversity of an urban setting of an urban landscape through sound Um, to think about how and where do we encounter religion publicly in American cities um, and what different kind of model of thinking about religion would we gain by listening to religion at work uh, in a variety of different spaces and sites. So what we're doing is we're training undergraduate uh, researchers in our classes um, to go out into the city to make field recordings of religion and practice at a variety of different kinds of sites and spaces. Um, We're trying to move beyond simply institutional confines. So we're not just going to do, you know, the, the canonical sounds or services that happen in churches and synagogues and mosques. Um, but a much wider array of different kinds of sites, of homes, of workplaces, uh, restaurants, et cetera, when religion spills over into public um, and private and kind of the, the, how it permeates that boundary, right, between public and private in cities, um, and record religion and practice, also stretch the boundaries of what counts as religion. Um, so we'll think about a variety of spaces in the city um, uh, uh, that push our understandings so of kind of what counts as religion rather than take that category for granted. And then the idea is to integrate those recordings onto um, a digital or online mapping platform uh, that would allow users uh, to this website um, to create different kinds of maps uh, that would allow them to understand religion's place in the city in kind of a dynamic way by listening to it, but also in conjunction with different kinds of ways of thinking about the city, socioeconomically, um, racially, other kinds of forms. Um, but of getting kind of this dynamic map of religion in the city uh, through sound is kind of one idea we're, we're, we're playing. I'm, I'm playing with right now um, that will also lead to various um, kind of more traditional written. Uh, projects as well as I further t- try to think about the way that um, religious pluralism has transformed um, kind of the sensory landscape of America, or this, the sensory practice of religion in the United States today. Uh, so that's one major project that's occupying my attention. Um, I have a few other more traditional kind of scholarly projects that move me away from sound that I'm also thinking about, which have more to do with religion and law uh, in the U.S. and continuing to think about law as a site uh, for the construction and legitimation of different ways of thinking about American religious identity, Um, who counts as an American religiously, and looking at the way that um, uh, in trying to define religion at different moments, um, U.S. law has constituted an important site uh, for legitimating different different understandings of American identity.
0: It sounds like the first project is really, collapsing the boundary between scholarship and art. And that's why that sounds really exciting.
1: Absolutely. And, and in fact, we've envisioned for it. Uh, and I've actually spoken with some radio producers about doing a series of whether it's uh, um, uh, radio productions or a podcast series. Um, I'm actually working as well with a local artist here in Columbus to think about, um, sound as art, I think is exactly, uh, uh um, one of the ways that you put it that I think is really, really helpful. Um, uh, that's our hope. And, and it's, 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 it's in its infancy at this stage. Uh, we're still kind of playing with the idea and we've begun doing some recording. Um, but it's an idea that we're really playing with uh, more than is anything kind of definitively settled at this stage. But uh, but I'm pretty excited about it. it's, its possibility and potential, I think.
0: Well, Isaac, we've taken up a lot of your time. We're excited about your book on sound and we're excited about seeing the new work that uh, this innovative new work that you're speaking about. Um, thank you for speaking to us today on New Books in Religion.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
0: That was my conversation with Isaac Weiner. His book, Religion Out Loud, Religious Sound, Public Space, and American Pluralism, was published by New York University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.